In the previous episode, we heard how Alan Dorfman rose to become one of the most influential middlemen between prominent union figures and the Chicago mob through managing the Teamsters' vast pension fund. In the beginning, he was working with powerful union president Jimmy Hoffa to funnel cash to the mafia. But Hoffa was sent to prison and Dorfman was now working with mobster Joey the Clown Lombardo. The FBI were on to them, committed to bringing down the one man who was instrumental in bankrolling the million-dollar mob projects, Alan Dorfman, the Mafia Banker. We were after Dorfman because he was the the gear that made everything run. He might have been a man who would be successful in any walk of business, but he got in with the mob. A very intelligent individual, but also a person with a huge ego, believing that he was smarter than everyone else. In this Audio Boom original series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and the people who were actually there. In this episode, we tell the extraordinary story of how the FBI hunted Alan Dorfman, bugged his business, and caused one of the biggest disasters in Mafia history. In the early 1970s, Former Teamsters president Jimmy Hoffa was still behind bars for bribing a jury. But life on the outside was good for Alan Dorfman. With Joey Lombardo's backing, Dorfman was approving million-dollar loans for mobster projects. The two men worked well together, and they didn't need Hoffa anymore to gain access to the Teamsters pension fund money. And then, on December 23, 1971... Jimmy Hoffa was given an early Christmas present, a pardon from President Nixon. Now a free man, Hoffa wanted his old job back. The late John Siegenthaler, former editor of the newspaper The Tennessean and political advisor to Robert Kennedy. Jimmy Hoffa thought he was in control. Uh, The mob, those people dealing with him, knew he was not. Once he's out of the presidency of the Union, into prison, now he gets back out after signing an agreement that he would not seek to become head of the Union again, uh, and suddenly he decides, well, that was a mistake. Uh, I'm going to get back in charge of the Union, and I'm going to renew my relationships uh, with these members of the mob, and of course the mob resisted that. The mafia bosses felt their money machine was working well, with Dorfman an essential cog. They wanted nothing to do with Hoffa. The former union leader sought revenge, speaking openly on the radio and television about exposing mob corruption and getting organized crime out of the Teamsters Union. He even threatened to stop the Mafia from using the pension fund. When you compare the conviction of Hoffa to the conviction of Dorfman earlier in the 70s, um, I think you have to understand that when Dorfman went to jail, he did not talk about anything. He did his time. He was 
what is referred to as a stand-up guy. Hoffa had made a deal that he would relinquish his power, his control, and take a reduced sentence. He got his jail time, wasn't as long as it could have been, and he got out fairly early. Then he did a reversal. And rather than say, I won't go back and try to get my power back, he started back to try to get his power back. Dorfman had never made that agreement. The only agreement Dorfman made was to keep his mouth shut. And then, on July the 30th, 1975, Jimmy Hoffa famously went missing. Jimmy Hoffa sincerely thought of himself as a tough guy, uh, as tough as anybody in the mob. He never thought that he would come to the end he came to at the hands of the mob. According to news reports, he had been last seen at the fashionable Red Fox restaurant in a Detroit suburb. His car still in the restaurant parking lot, Hoffa seemed to have just vanished off the face of the earth without a trace. The FBI put 200 agents on the Hoffa disappearance and spent millions to find him. To this day, his body has never been found. But if the mob thought Hoffa's disappearance would get the FBI off their tail, they were mistaken. In 1978, federal law enforcement officials began to form an attack plan to get rid of Alan Dorfman once and for all. Doug Roller was the attorney in charge at the Chicago Strike Force from 1978 to 1984. We were after Dorfman, make no mistake about it, because he was the... The, uh, uh, the gear that made everything run as far as controlling of the central state's pension fund, but he was not the sole target. Stopping Dorfman would not only cut off the mafia's money supply, it would allow the authorities to follow the paper trail of bad loans and convict mobsters throughout the U.S. If we penetrated Dorfman and, and his uh, contacts, then that would open up uh, avenues of prosecution and evidence gathering as to the mob, uh, corrupt Teamsters officials, and on occasion, like I said, um, uh, corrupt uh, public officials. The FBI knew that catching Dorfman wasn't going to be quick or easy. Their only chance of a successful indictment would require more electronic surveillance than ever before. The plan was to record all of Dorfman's phone conversations with his associates in the hope that he would incriminate himself. FBI co-case agent Jim Wagner. That was a tremendous manpower drain, and it was really a fight to get the FBI at that time to agree to put that many people in, in the case. FBI higher-ups worried that the operation would be too expensive. Here's Doug Roller. They were concerned as to how long it would continue, which was fairly perceptive on their part because we intended to continue it as long as we could. Another obstacle was that tapping Dorfman's phone was far from straightforward. Each call came in, and any one of those that came in on a separate line could have been transferred to Alan Dorfman in his office. And therefore, we could not simply tap one line. We had to tap all lines going into that office. 
In order for wiretap evidence to be admissible at trial, they would need a warrant for each individual line. Uh, we were going to be forced to request the ability to tap into approximately 15 or 16 telephone lines. But on January 29, 1979, a court gave permission for multiple wiretaps, and Operation Pendorf began. The FBI rented offices near Dorfman's insurance agency. Then the telephone company redirected the phone lines so agents could monitor and record all of Dorfman's calls. His world opened up to them as never before. On that very first day, they heard Dorfman brokering a $90 million deal for the mob to purchase a hidden interest in the Aladdin Casino Hotel in Las Vegas. Dorfman's days as best as we could tell. Uh, when he was in the office, when he was actually working uh, and not playing golf, uh, was mainly communicating with the gangsters, um, fulfilling their needs, uh, a problem solver, um, influence peddling, everything you'd think a power broker in legitimate business, semi-legitimate business anyway, would do today. Except this was far from legitimate business. Only a few days later, on February 2nd, agents were stunned when Dorfman's conversations involved loan sharking, a takeover of the Teamsters' pension fund, the unlawful use of gold certificates, and even a plan to kill the Teamsters' president. And that was just one day's work. Over the next six months, the FBI monitored over 100,000 phone calls and recorded more than 3,500 of them. But it still wasn't enough. They needed to hear all of Dorfman's business conversations, not just when he was on the phone. And to do that, they would have to bug his office. The information that we developed on the telephones led us to have sufficient probable cause to ask the courts for the ability to put a microphone in his office. A federal judge was persuaded to grant the warrant. All the FBI now had to do was break into Dorfman's office. We entered Dorfman's office surreptitiously late at night because we had um, an informant who worked for Alan Dorfman's office. We simply had my informant rent a parking place under the building. The entry which was out of sight of the guard, and we drove into the in, un, underground parking. Went up into the building and went into the office. Agents planted two microphones. Now, rather than his business-like telephone manner, they captured the real Alan Dorfman. The interceptions uh, of Alan Dorfman were fairly revealing as to his personality, he was uh, very gruff, uh, a lot of profanities, uh, and very arrogant, uh, and uh, became angered when what he wanted was not being done. He did not mince words, and most of his conversations were laced with profanity. But in his meetings with Joey the Clown Lombardo, the agents heard a very different Alan Dorfman. Crime author Thomas Rapetto. He would walk around Las Vegas shouting orders like a Marine sergeant. And then when he met 
the mob boss would come on the scene in Chicago. He was a meek and mild, uh, <laughs> he was a meek, mild businessman. Dorfman and Lombardo spent a lot of time together, and some of their conversations surprised the eavesdropping FBI agents. Our opinion of Joe Lombardo uh, actually improved as we listened to the conversations. By that time, Joe had developed the nickname, at least in the media, of the clown. He had developed a tendency to joke with policemen, to joke with reporters, and uh, the, the term the clown for him really, uh, we found, was not appropriate. He was a very, very astute businessman himself and very knowledgeable. We overheard conversations most mornings where they were reading the Wall Street Journal, they were discussing the articles, and really there was no difference uh, in the understanding of the material on the part of Lombardo uh, as compared to Dorfman. They had the, the same understanding and uh, had interesting conversations about it. What the FBI had long suspected was now becoming clear, and they had it all on tape. Over 2,000 reels of Dorfman were recorded and transcribed, at his office, on the phone, and in meetings. And despite being unaware of this, Dorfman still seemed careful and guarded. Alan Dorfman, like a lot of the uh, gangsters, um, didn't think that they would be caught. They thought they were too smart. But Dorfman finally made a fatal mistake. Back in January 1979, Teamsters President Roy L. Williams and Senator Howard W. Cannon of Nevada asked Dorfman for a meeting. Williams had a problem with a pending bill in Congress that would deregulate the trucking industry, which meant a loss of money and power for the union. And Senator Cannon wanted to block local developers from building next to his exclusive Las Vegas Country Club home. The planned nine-story apartment would have spoiled his view. As it happened, the vacant lot was owned by none other than the Teamsters Central States Pension Fund. So Dorfman brokered the meeting with Cannon and Williams to see if they could help each other out. Dorfman agreed to sell Senator Cannon the six-acre plot, and in return... Cannon would personally oversee the trucking deregulation bill to benefit Williams. It was, in effect, a bribe. And bribing a U.S. senator is a serious crime. Back in Washington, as chairman of the powerful Commerce Committee, Cannon successfully watered down the trucking bill. But Dorfman was having a harder time delivering his end of the bargain. Recent legislation prevented him from dealing in land. The feds listened in as Dorfman vented. In the bug, Dorfman is going on about, you know, you know how terrible this was. These guys were pieces of shit. And in the old days, we could have just had the Teamsters out there bought in and give it to them. Uh, but we can't do that now because everyone's watching us. On May the 21st, 1979... Senator Cannon called Dorfman to ask how the land deal was coming along. Embarrassed, Dorfman could only apologize for the delay. 
Senator Cannon never got the real estate he wanted. But the FBI got what they needed, an incriminating recording proving that Dorfman was involved in bribing a U.S. senator. At the beginning of 1980, after 13 months of surveillance, the Chicago Strike Force went public with Operation Pendorf. Senator Cannon was quick to defend himself from accusations of wrongdoing, denying any connection between his role in the trucking legislation and a personal land use dispute. So Cannon was allowed to get away with it, but Dorfman wasn't so lucky. The man who had stolen the Teamsters' millions was still in the sights of Chicago Strike Force leader Doug Roller. We felt by the time the wiretap was over that we had a great deal of evidence to, to put together a prosecution, but we also conducted an extensive grand jury investigation, uh, which uh, was helpful in uh, securing witness testimony to putting some flesh on the bones of the wiretaps. And uh, by the time that grand jury was over, I felt we had an ironclad case. It seemed that the FBI finally had their man on the ropes, yet Dorfman appeared unconcerned. Dorfman in court was most of the time an arrogant gentleman. Although he was physically in court, present, that he was aloof to what was going on. Despite the cool veneer, Dorfman knew what was at stake. At one occasion during the course of the trial, Allen introduced his son to me and say, stating that uh, this is the motherfucker that wants to put me in jail. I just uh, told Alan, you're a real class act, and, and walked away. Alan's cool may have stemmed from more than just having the best lawyers. He knew the mafia was helping the jurors come to a sensible decision. Several jurors received a, uh, early morning telephone calls from someone with a, uh, a deep, gravelly voice uh, who made insinuations about uh, not knowing the whole story uh, of the case. When the jurors reported the illegal phone calls, the judge immediately sequestered them. They were held in a hotel, under guard, cut off from any outside interference. The old mob methods just didn't work anymore. This time, no shotgun blasts could silence a witness. As the Pendorf tapes were played in court, the battle lines with the Mafia were redrawn. The accused had now become witnesses against themselves. As Dorfman's tape played, profanity, anger, and frustration resounded in court. The best evidence you can use in court is the defendant's own words. You cannot undo your words. You might try to explain them away, but if there are enough words there, you're sunk. On December 15, 1982, Alan Dorfman was found guilty of conspiring to bribe Senator Howard Cannon. Operation Pendorf had struck its target, and it was a devastating blow. 60-year-old Dorfman was facing a 55-year prison term, but sentencing was not for another eight weeks. There was still plenty of time to cut a deal. Facing a prison term... Uh, would not have been something that Dorfman would have looked forward to with his high lifestyle, his uh, 
all the uh, accruements of the rich that he had would all be taken away in prison. There was now concern at the highest levels of the mafia. Was Dorfman tough enough to accept his fate, or would he negotiate with the Justice Department to reduce his sentence? And there had to be fear that in order to keep his sentence down, or to keep from even being put in prison, Alan Dorfman might want to cooperate with the federal government. If ever there was a good time for Dorfman to roll over on his mob friends, this was it. I think the number of secrets that Alan Dorfman could have told us it just boggled the mind. And the reason being is he was such an important individual to the mob financially. He knew who was getting the skim, who was, who, how it was being broken up. He knew how uh, things operated in the Teamsters. Um, and I, I believe that he could have, uh, if he had testified, helped us to completely uh, cripple Cleveland, Chicago, Kansas City, Las Vegas, and maybe Los Angeles. Um, he knew everything. He got to meet all these people. They trusted him, so they talked around him. He heard things he shouldn't be hearing. He's seen things he shouldn't have been seeing. We felt he would be vulnerable to an offer to diminish his prison sentence in return for his cooperation. Um, never got that far because uh, the mob was thinking the same thing. The man who for years had loyally bankrolled the mob was now a liability. On January 20th, 1983, Alan Dorfman and an old friend met for lunch at the Hyatt Hotel in Lincolnwood, northwest Chicago. In the parking lot outside the hotel, they were suddenly approached from behind by two men wearing dark masks. The moment they turned around, the masked men opened fire and shot Dorfman several times. The business associate was unharmed, but Dorfman died at the scene in a puddle of his own blood. Alan Dorfman had just kept 30 years of mob secrets the hard way. His death was a watershed for both the U.S. Mafia and U.S. law enforcement. I believe it was one of the, the largest and perhaps most successful investigations of organized crime uh, undertaken during this period. Without Dorfman, the Mafia's money supply was cut off. It crippled the mob and they never recovered. I think that is his legacy. His conviction and ultimate demise, um, I think, signaled the end to that era. And uh, no one replaced Alan Dorfman. No one replaced Alan Dorfman at all. And the mob's control, iron fisted control, or the pension fund, uh, was gone. And without Alan Dorfman, they did not have access to that bank, and um, it was part of the death knell of, of that easy money for the mob. Operation Pendorf had also proved the power of mass electronic surveillance and revolutionized the use of bugs and wiretaps for law enforcement. Electronic surveillance uh, changed the playing field forever for the, in favor of the government and was, in my opinion, the most useful tool I had while serving with the department to go after organized crime. 
From then on, over and over again, electronic surveillance of mob figures and their operations would lead criminals to condemn themselves with their own words. There was nowhere to hide, no witnesses to silence. The FBI had at last found a way to break the Mafia. In the next episode, Florida in the mid-1950s, the international gateway to the Caribbean, and ruled by one mob boss, Santo Traficante, who would turn neighboring Cuba into a gambling paradise. He was very powerful. He had a lot of connections. He was the natural selection, the natural choice to be sort of the go-to guy when it came to Cuba. Traficante's influence and power would lead to forging relationships with the likes of Fidel Castro and JFK. Traficante definitely was hedging his bets. He was paying off the Batista officials and the government, but at the same time, he was giving money to the guerrillas and to Castro and their causes. But when he felt betrayed by these heads of state, he would go on to have a hand in plotting their assassinations. Nothing's more uh, sensational than the assassination of the president. That's next week on Mafia. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Ben Hosley and Rachel Jacobs and Bettina Vasquez for World Media Rights. We had editing help from David Markowitz, with additional production from World Media Rights by Gerald Zabingwa. David McNabb is the series' creative director. And the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Reagan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Indochino for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. <laughs>